Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, October the 8th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, October the 11th, 2021 from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 77th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. want to welcome you to a very special show tonight, the focus of which is not just on wealth inequality, but the toolbox of legal but often unethical methods used by wealth managers in the service of huge wealth holders to protect, hide, and expand the inordinate wealth that they have a wealth that has been distorting our democracy, as well as the majority population interests of the world for a long time and has long reached very damaging epidemic levels. We have a very special guest, a leader in this field that will educate us on the many methods of wealth hoarding and wealth protecting in the world today, and that would be Chuck Collins of inequality.org. But before we turn to our show tonight, we also want to pay tribute to the significance of Indigenous Day, formerly Columbus Day. We have done a number of shows and want people to remember that to understand the world around us and oppression in general is to understand how wealth accumulation began and occurred in the New World over the last 500 years with the conquering of the New World by the Spanish and Portuguese and the Dutch, who soon after were replaced by the French and English, and then later replaced in the Western Hemisphere overwhelmingly with the Monroe Doctrine by the United States of America. The victims of that colonial exploitation and accumulation of wealth were the people that were enslaved that generated so much of that accumulated wealth and the colonizing and neo-colonialist forms of oppression that continue to this day. So please take a moment to appreciate indigenous peoples everywhere, especially here in the United States, where Native Americans suffer the harshest forms of systemic racism in our culture today. So in a world in which so few have so much and so many have so little, we dedicate this show on wealth disparity and its 21st century methods of accumulation in celebration of Indigenous Day and Indigenous people everywhere. Enjoy. Okay, welcome. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. Thank you for joining us. Today is Friday, October the 8th, 2021, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, October the 11th, 2021. 
before I introduce our very special guest, I just had some introductory remarks because we are going to be talking about the issue of wealth inequality and those that are the greatest beneficiaries of that wealth inequality and how and what tools in the toolkit they have to maintain and expand that advantage. From March to June of 2020, according to this article and video by Business Insider, it was a Business Insider report that was published back on July 28, 2020. It was entitled, How Billionaires Got $637 Billion Richer During the Pandemic, as they saw their net worth increase $637 billion. Meanwhile, 40 million Americans had filed for unemployment during the pandemic at that time, which was a real jobless rate of over 23.9%. That was according to a report by Fortune magazine of May 28, 2020. By August 17th, 2021, if you fast forward, and we'll be introducing our guest, but this is a, from a blog of his, Chuck Collins, that is. And according to Mr. Collins, U.S. billionaires have seen their wealth surge $1.8 trillion during the pandemic. Their collective fortune skyrocketing by nearly two-thirds, some 62%, from just short of $3 trillion at the start of COVID crisis on March 8th, 2020, to $4.8 trillion by August 17th, 2021, the date of this blog. This according to a report from Americans for Tax Fairness and the Institute for Policy Studies program on inequality. So it was interesting that on March the 8th, 2020, CNBC reported the Dow sinking 200 points in the worst day since 2008. Yet despite the stock market plunge, the rich were getting richer. So it begs the question, with tens of millions out of paycheck and the stock market plummeting by 37% in March, how is it that the rich have continued to get richer? It is also interesting, when I speak about the COVID bump in their, in their wealth, that wasn't the first time the rich had made these windfalls during an economic downturn. When you go back to the recession period, when the bubble burst in 2007, home prices, they fell some 21% and roughly 3.1 million homes were foreclosed on in the U.S. and the stock market fell by 52%. And by the end of 2009, 8.8 million Americans had lost their jobs. And so this great recession, which was from 2007 to 2009, was spurred by this housing bubble burst. At the time, the IMF concluded that it was the most severe economic financial meltdown since the Great Depression, and the effects lingered. So post-recession, the recovery was very rapid for the most wealthy, but from 2009 to 2012, the incomes of the bottom 99% grew by only 0.4%, and this is, again, by the same article I'm referring back to now, that how billionaires got their $637 billion richer during the pandemic by the Business Insider of July 28, 2020. But while the bottom 99% grew by only 0.4% their incomes, the top 1% incomes grew by 31.4% during the same time span of 2009 to 2012. So the claim by the article in the Business Insider is that there's two major things going on. First, that the government disproportionately gave more aid to banks and corporations in 2008 and the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act was signed into law in 2008 by President George Bush, creating this $700 billion program to purchase devalued assets from banks. So think about that for a minute. $700 billion to the banks. 
I mean, welfare is a statutory procedure or social effort designed to promote the basic physical and material well-being of people in need. But what we don't focus on much is corporate welfare, which is often used to describe a government's bestowing of money, grants, tax breaks, or other special favorable treatment for corporations. So here you have a $700 billion welfare bailout to corporations. We've already talked about an economic system that post-recession 2009 to 2012 Who were the ones that got the most bounce back and needy reimbursements? Was it the needy working class working paycheck to paycheck to make ends meet? And the rest of the majority population of our country? No. The incomes of the bottom 99%, we said, grew by only 0.4% from 2009 to 2012, post-recession. Meanwhile, the top 1% incomes grew by 31.4% during that same time span. That's more than a 60 times greater increase for the ultra-rich that don't need the money than the majority population from which the wealth transfer emanates from. Meanwhile, as we've already documented in the COVID crisis, during that crisis, the billionaire class made fortunes, 62% wealth increase, made fortunes upon fortunes, while tens of millions, 40 million or more Americans lost their jobs. What kind of system is this? And again, this was the $700 billion TARP program, and later President Obama would direct some $75 billion in funds from that TARP to help reduce the interest payments for homeowners. But at the end of the day, do the math, when homeowners, they received about 10% of the relief that the banks and the corporations got. And so you had some $700 billion going to banks and corporations versus some $75 billion going to homeowners. The other factor, they claim, is the stock market issue bouncing back, that the unequal bailout meant that the wealthy still had money on hand to invest in this profit, while the middle and lower classes did not. And these stock market gains were also disproportionately provided these windfalls to to the Wall Street, to the 1%, if you will. They mentioned connected to the stock market is that the federal government actions facilitated this wealth transfer. In 2008, the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, at the time, lowered the short-term interest rates to near zero. And when the feds cut these interest rates to near zero to combat this economic recession, they would remain that low for nearly a decade. And this really paved the way for historic bull market on Wall Street. In other words, if if, if you can't make money outside of the stock market in your CDs and all that, all the money pours into the stock market. And basically, that's, according to them, is what occurred. So essentially, what the Business Insider article is arguing is that apparently this federal interest rate incentive, if you will, essentially resulted in setting the stage for huge profiteering of the 1% as they move their assets increasingly into the stock markets. While Main Street, who cannot afford the risk of putting all their hard-earned money into the stock market, saw their CD and savings rates drop off the cliff. The result was essentially a wealth transfer from the 99% to the 1%. But who really benefits when the stock market is doing really, really well, when you have a bull market? Well, I looked at the Federal Reserve's latest statistics, current data, which is at the end of the second quarter of 2021, When it comes to stock ownership, the top 1% own more than 53% of all stocks. And if you include the top 10%, the stock ownership rises to 88.85% of all stocks. 
Meanwhile, the bottom 50% own barely a tick over a half of a percent at 0.65 of 1%. And if you combine the bottom 90%, that's another 10.5%. So it is a real myth that when the stock market goes up, everybody benefits. That what is good for corporations is good for Main Street. Actually, 88.85% of the benefit go to the richest 10% of our population. So the clear truth of the matter is when the stock market goes up, so does wealth inequality. But lastly, I just wanted to mention, and we've talked about it on other shows, the amount of the wealth disparity in the world, and this is some Oxfam reported back in 2019 that the world's billionaires, there was 2,153 back then in 2019, but that their combined wealth is more than 4.6 billion people of the world, you know, which is like over half the world population. So I don't want to overwhelm everybody with all these statistics, but it's just an extraordinary uh, wealth disparity that is creating so many problems, and it got aggravated during this COVID period. And so anyhow, without further ado, I wanted to introduce our guest. And first, Chuck Collins, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Hey, thank you for having me, Pedro. Well, it's, it's a great honor and a great privilege to have you on. And, and, and Chuck Collins, he's the author of The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. And he's also the director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he co-edits inequality.org. He is also the co-author with Mary Wright, The Moral Measure of the Economy, a book about Christian ethics and economic life that have not had the chance to read, but just the issue of ethics is so critical for the salvation of our democracy, if we are going to have one. And in your work, there's a number of pieces that I was looking at, but you just talk about this democracy distorting wealth inequality that we, we've been alluding to. And there was an international consortium of investigative journalists recently began publishing these stories about the Pandora Papers, which is a, a huge trove of data and has been recently been made public of over 10 million records, which exposes the underpinnings of the finances of some of the world's wealthy and wealthiest elite. And it follows the 2016 Panama Papers and the 2017 Paradise Paper investigations, which are similar about the wealth methods of maintaining, expanding, and maintaining tax-free types of uh, networks and such. But Chuck, with that introduction, can you share with us the significance of these Pandora Papers and the Panama Papers and as well with respect to what it reveals about the state of the world and how it impacts the majority population of the world? Yeah, sure, Pedro. Well, you know, the Pandora Papers is a huge event. It's, as you pointed out, millions of leaked documents that came from sort of offshore financial service companies in different parts of the world. What it does is it gives us a window into kind of the secret mechanisms that the super-rich use to hide their money, avoid paying taxes, uh, avoid responsibility. This hidden wealth system is one of the reasons why economic inequality is growing, why wealth is concentrating in fewer hands. And more and more of the world's wealthy are deploying these tools to lower their taxes and hide their money. So really, it's very significant. It's kind of a global event. And just to say, I had the privilege of working, you know, knowing in advance that the papers were coming out and working with journalists in about 20 different countries 
to sort of help explain the U.S. part of the story. The U.S. is now one of the biggest tax havens in the world. Wealthy people and criminals are bringing their money here to the U.S. And I worked with a lot of these incredibly courageous journalists from around the world who were documenting how their own elites were stealing money or siphoning money out of their own countries and how harmful that was. So it's a very significant event. So let me back up for just a second, because with the Pandora Papers, one of the interesting things, and some people have criticized it for that, is that it was predominantly the beneficiaries were leaders in developing nations. Can you speak a little bit to that as far as where the wealthiest put their monies when it comes to Western and U.S. interests? Is that also getting aired out in these revelations? Well, the leaks came from all over the world. People from 200 different countries, their names were found in the Pandora Papers. And, well, I should say that very few people from the United States, not, you know, just a couple hundred people in the United States were disclosed. But that's because wealthy people from the U.S. don't go to some of these offshore centers for their financial services. The, mm-hmm. the leaks came from Singapore and Cyprus and, you know, places where rich people from the U.S. don't necessarily go. In fact, wealthy people in the U.S. now are keeping their wealth onshore because we have the state of Delaware with our anonymous shell companies, and we have South Dakota with these dynasty trusts, and we have kind of a bunch of systems here where rich people can game their taxes down or hide their money. So it's not necessary to take the money offshore in many cases. But this is the mechanism by where, you know, just for example, Mexico, you know, look across the border there. The Pandora Papers revealed 3,000 wealthy Mexicans, politicians, politically connected people uh, were unmasked in the Pandora Papers. And they were found to be, you know, moving money to law firms in Panama and uh, Belize and and, uh, the British Virgin Islands. And then that money would be put in anonymous shell companies and it would be go to the U.S. and buy real estate. Mm -hmm. So this is a huge story in Mexico because it's kind of unveiling how their own elites are failing to fix the system because they're using it themselves. Yeah, and let me just ask you also, there's so many different forms of corruption and where corruption interfaces with ethics. You can actually be abiding by laws, yet being unethical in your hoarding of resources. And I guess that's the question I wanted to ask is that when you think about how this money is hidden in a way in which it, it is never taxed or certainly is never taxed at any significant rate, what are some of those revelations and repercussions? And how much of this would you say is legal versus illegal versus legal but not ethical? If you can discuss that a little bit about how important it really is for people that have more resources than they could ever spend in 10 lifetimes in a world in which so many are hurting so much. Yeah, Pedro, this is such an important question because first, uh, and and this book, The Wealth Hoarders, what I write about is what I call the enablers, Mm -hmm. the wealth defense industry. These are the attorneys, the accountants, the wealth managers, people who work in family offices. And all of them will say, well, this is perfectly legal. We're just helping our clients obey the law. But if you dig into the story, what you realize is those wealth defense lawyers and others are writing the laws. They're going to the state legislature in South Dakota and saying, pass these laws to weaken 
trust reporting requirements. Mm. They're going to the legislature in the British Virgin Islands and say, uh, create this new trust that we can then market to the world. So these people are writing and rigging the rules. So there's a big difference between legal and ethical or right. Just because they have the power and they're representing the richest people on the planet doesn't mean they're right. And let's be clear, this system, this hidden wealth system, there's estimates of somewhere between 25 and $36 trillion of wealth parked in the offshore system, parked in these tax havens. Can you repeat that number again, please? Yeah. So the, the estimate, there's an estimated 26 to $36 trillion wow. of wealth hidden in these offshore tax systems mm-hmm. by the wealthiest people in the world. And when I say wealthy, I'm talking about people with $30 million or more, mm-hmm. what, what are called ultra-high net worth individuals in the trade. And so, you know, there's nothing ethical about a system that moves money from, you know, moves essentially the wealth of nations to the private anonymous accounts of the super rich. Right. Well, I just want to remind our listeners that we're visiting with the distinguished author, Chuck Collins. He's the author of The The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. Um, he's also the director of the program on inequality, inequality.org, which has a lot of good information and pieces there if people are interested in really trying to discover the nature and the dimensions of inequality in this world. You know, there's this group, I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, but they're called the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, and many years ago had a woman on that uh, was very familiar with this deal. And and that, that's what they do, is they, they create legislation and influence legislation throughout the whole country that advantages those larger corporate types of interest and such. So I think the corruption, so much of what goes on is unfortunately endemic or inherent to the system that we have that's so overwhelmed with the reality that the more wealth you have, the more power you have to influence the rules of the game in which you are playing within. Are you familiar at all with the American Legislative Exchange Council? And is that similar to what you were referring to when you said that they have impact on creating laws or the lack of laws that would legislate more fairness and ethical boundaries for the issues of of tax and tax havens? Yeah, no, I'm very familiar with ALEC. And I'm sure that the wealth defense industry works closely with ALEC to create model laws, model legislation for trusts and helps kind of fuel this kind of race to the bottom. I mean, the reality, Pedro, is certain states are competing with each other over who can attract this global billionaire wealth, mm-hmm. and who can lower the bar and lower the standards in a sort of a race to the bottom in terms of lowering standards and reporting standards and the like. So there's probably half the states in the United States are in that chase competing. There tend to be the smaller states, conservative states, where a small but influential wealth management industry can really have tremendous power in the political system. And so is your work geared towards, I mean, first of all, obviously making people aware of this issue, but then also I've studied so many countries of the world, and I've been very impressed with a lot of countries that we demonize. Like, for instance, in Venezuela, I can remember very late 1990s when Hugo Chavez came to power, one of the very first things he did was pretty much just really enforce tax law. And as a result, it generated huge amounts of revenues 
that then could be used to meet more public-oriented, unmet social needs in a country in which that was so overwhelmingly poor. Can you talk a little bit about, when you talk about appropriate taxation, if there was such a thing, and people were paying their appropriate taxation amounts, and, and right now there's a debate going on with you know, how to reform the tax laws in a way in which more monies could be made available. We've been talking about the problem side of the equation here. When you think about the solution-oriented side, or at least the improvement, if not solution, so what would you have to share with, with our audience on that? Yeah, well, I think you're right, Pedro, that the drift over the last couple of decades has been to reduce taxes on the very wealthy and on global corporations. As, as recently as 2017, the Trump tax cut. And yeah, right now, Congress is debating, you know, they, we want to make big investments in infrastructure, this Build Back Better investment program. This is a really important moment, and there's a plan to how to pay for it by raising taxes on people who earn more than $400,000 a year. And President Biden has put forward a pretty good revenue plan. He, he says things like, look, why do we tax income from capital gains and wealth at lower rates, you know, 20%, lower than income from work and wages, which are at the highest rate taxed at 37%? Why do we allow wealthy people to avoid the estate tax, our national inheritance tax, which you know, you need to have $11.5 million before you have to start to pay it. So it's a tax on the very top sliver of wealthy people. Uh, and he's, he's proposing that we rebuild enforcement on the wealthy because the Internal Revenue Service, which is an annoyance for many people, but the reality is that is the oversight body and their ability to police the wealthy and their tax shenanigans has been decimated. They've lost the oversight capacity and the expertise they need to follow the money of the super-rich. And then we've heard proposals for even bolder things, a wealth tax, an annual wealth tax on the very wealthy, put forward by Senator Elizabeth Warren. So there's a whole kind of menu of policies. And Pedro, one of the important and encouraging things is these policies are really popular. 70 to 80 percent of voters support increasing taxes on the wealthy. Well, Chuck, before you go on explicating this support for proper taxation, We need to take a quick break for the cause. So we're going to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. And we'll be back with our guest, Chuck Collins, right after this. So please stay tuned and don't touch that dial. 91.7 